The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. I was not here last week, as I mentioned, and we were doing a study in Corinthians, where we're in chapter 14, but I promised two weeks ago that I would finish up what I started two weeks ago when on uh, June 26th, 2015, the Supreme Court issued their rendering about redefining marriage, and so I did part one two weeks ago, just calling it God's view of marriage. And then so today, uh, I wanted to follow up that with some practical application of what I said two weeks ago, God's view of marriage part two. And so those of you who weren't here two weeks ago, just so you know what I did, I first of all, I gave a 10-question survey, kind of a diagnostic quiz to see what you think about these issues from a biblical worldview. Uh, then I just simply gave four points right out of the Bible talking about the basics of marriage, starting in Genesis, that God designed marriage, God defined marriage, God defends marriage, and that Satan attacks marriage. That's where I left off last time when we looked at the scriptures on those. So I want to follow up with that, uh, in particular with some practical applications I've heard from several people since the last two weeks, a lot of conversation going on and some heated conversation going on, some folks that are confused, uh, many Christians looking for counsel, what do we do now? Actually, can we, I think my volume's a little too loud, um, if we can just adjust that a little bit, I don't want to hurt people's ears when I start talking a little louder, thank you. Um, so today, more of the practical application. There's so much that can be said. I mean, we've got about 35 minutes together now. That's not enough to even scratch the surface or exhaust this topic. So I'm just going to come up with... I want to give you six basic principles from God's Word to kind of to give you parameters by which to operate, to think, to live, to pray, to pursue um, discussion, and also to be discerning as you read other things. Others have come out publicly and spoken quite eloquently and authoritatively from Scripture on this matter with great wisdom. I've been blessed by several of them. I think of John MacArthur has uh, given a wonderful statement and summary from a Bible biblical point of view. My former pastor, uh, Al Moeller from Southern Seminary as well, has written on this uh, actually a lot since this came out with great wisdom that I know helped me uh, focus on the family. actually had a very good summary statement on this. Jim Daly, who now heads that up, very wise counsel for Christians. Those things might help you and bless your soul anywhere that you can find it. Encourage you to pursue it. So we're going to look to God's Word together as a local church. The first three points have to do with having a right perspective about our God, which needs to be the foundation, really, for practical living and where we go from there. So my first three points of these six have to do about God, and then the last three have to do about us and implementing some of these principles. And I do, I'm going to be taking you to a lot of scriptures, and I'd like you to, if you can, get your nose in the scripture and follow along with me. It's very important to actually look at God's word as you're reading it for a lot of different reasons. So if you're able to follow along in some of these passages, I would encourage you to do so. So we're following up God's view of marriage, part two. And point number one is simply that God is in control. That can't be reiterated and overstated enough. Uh, again, it's not a superfluous platitude. It's a reality. It's the theme of the Bible, actually. God is in control 
you have your Bible and you wanted to look at Psalm 115, then I'm also going to look at two passages in Daniel 2 and Daniel 4 if you have your Bible. A couple of very specific phrases. I said last time that God knew this decision was going to be rendered. God wasn't blindsided or surprised by it at all. And even though this decision that redefines marriage and undermines God's very definition of it, it doesn't have God shaking at all in shock or dismay. He knows what to do. He's in control. He's still on the throne. And there's nothing that surprises him. All things work together for good as God is basically dictating history. And Psalm 115 is an amazing reminder of that that can comfort our hearts of this God that we know personally through Jesus Christ. The only way you can know God and have a personal relationship with Him is by knowing His Son, Jesus the Savior, who died on the cross and rose again from the dead and offers eternal life to those who believe in Him. And when you know the God of the universe through Jesus Christ, then these promises can be real for you and guide your thinking. Psalm 115 verse 1 says, Not to us, O Lord, or Yahweh, God's personal name, because the writer here has a personal relationship with the creator of the universe, so he can use God's personal name, which is Yahweh here, covenant-keeping God, the God who keeps his promises, the God who loves his people. Not to us, O Yahweh, not to us, but to you, but to thy name give glory. Because of thy loving kindness, because of thy truth, why should the nations say, where now is their God? Where is that Christian God? We've done away with Him and His principles. No. Here's reality, verse 3. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Isn't that awesome? God is in the heavens. He reigns over everything. He sees over everything. He controls everything. He knows what's going on. There are no surprises. He reigns supreme. And not only that, he does whatever he pleases. That is awesome. That is the God that we serve. That is the God that we know through Jesus Christ. And that statement also includes Jesus himself because Jesus is God. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is in the heavens. Jesus does whatever he pleases in addition to the Father and the Holy Spirit. God is in control. Don't feel like you've been jolted and undone because of some decree that five people in Washington issue and tyrannically foist upon the people. God is aware He's in control. Now go to Daniel chapter 2. Talk about tumultuous times. We, we ain't seen nothing compared to uh, certain times in history and even things going on in other places in the world today. We're not being confronted with ISIS threatening to cut our head off and the, cut off the heads of our relatives and loved ones because of our faith and our worldview. Still enjoy a lot of freedom here in America, but in the days of Daniel, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, they were slaves. They were forced into slavery, taken and kidnapped from their own country and forced to live in a pagan land under a, a brutal pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. All these ungodly laws foisted upon them that they were subjected to. And so that's the story of Daniel, one of the major prophets. Um, so look at Daniel chapter 2. This is about 580 B.C. Um, and in Daniel chapter 2, as Daniel and his three friends were Jews, 
uh, or have been kidnapped, uh, are being watched, are being brainwashed, or at least they're trying to brainwash them as young men at this point, young teenagers, reprogrammed. Nebuchadnezzar is leading this effort. And then God uses Daniel as a faithful young believer. And Daniel understands that despite the fact that he's been ripped away from his family and his homeland and subjected to who knows what in slavery there in Babylon, he still trusts his Lord. He knows his God. He knows that God is in control. And God uses him with his Holy Spirit to actually give Daniel prophecy that he spoke at the time to encourage the people. And then also at some point he wrote down and has been preserved for us thousands of years later. And here's what Daniel said regarding God being in control despite the circumstances around him that were much worse than what we are contending with in our country. Uh, Daniel chapter 2, verse 19, And the mystery was revealed to Daniel in the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven, the same God that we know. Verse 20, And Daniel answered and said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to Him. Power. See, that's key. Power belongs to God. Supreme Court has power, but it's delegated power. It's delegated authority. They got it from who? They got it from God. And they abused that authority. But they still got it from God. So all power comes from God. All authority comes from him, Daniel acknowledges that wisdom and power belong to God. Verse 21, and it is he who changes the times and the epics. That means God is the author of history. If you look throughout uh, 6,000 years of human history, you see a lot of trends and ebbs and flows and high points and low points and uh, dictators and horrific laws and times of blessing. And God is totally in control of all of it. And he raises up people and he takes them down as far as world leaders and who's in power and uh, the president that we have in America is there by God's ordaining and the Supreme Court justice we have is because God put them there ultimately and the senators that we have and the governors that we have and all authority that we have ultimately comes from God. He's the one that delegates authority. That's what that means in verse 21. Uh, it is God who changes the times and the epics. So some of you that have lived long already on this earth, you've seen many changes here in American society. And if you've lived long enough, you've seen Amazing, dramatic changes, some for good and some for uh, ill or evil over the course of your time. And that fits in with this reality that Daniel's acknowledging that it's not humans really that are changing the times and the seasons and the epics and the trends and the events that are happening. It's God who is in charge behind the scenes allowing those things to happen. People are still culpable for their decisions. It is God who changes the times and the epics. The epics are periods of world history. We've been in a period of world history under the American society for 200 plus years. That's an epic, an epic of time. Verse 21, he removes kings and establishes kings. There it is. Well, where in the world did this Supreme Court Justice Kennedy come from who made this ridiculous, ungodly decision about what marriage is? Where did he come from? Well, verse 21 says that God is the one who removes kings and establishes kings. God puts people in authority, not just kings, but people who are in charge in government. Here in America, we don't have monarchs and kings, but we do have presidents and senators and those who are in authority locally and federally. And so a Supreme Court justice would be in that rank. So literally, God removes and establishes Supreme Court justices who make the laws, even though they're not supposed to make laws, by the way. That isn't how it's supposed to work, according to the Constitution. But sometimes they do. That's a usurpation of power. But nevertheless, God is the one who removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. Verse 22, it is God who reveals the profound and hidden things. 
He knows what is in the darkness. He knows the dirty deeds and wrong decisions made in the corner. He is not surprised by these things. He's not blindsided by anything. God knows everything. It's open and bare to Him, the omniscient one. And the light which dwells with Him to Thee, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. So one thing we can do during this time of confusion or the abuse of power that is constant as a believer is to do this, to thank God. Oh, God of my fathers, Yahweh, thank you. I praise you that you are in charge, that you are a just God, you're a righteous God, you're totally in control. You care about your people. And we can rest in that. So point number one is that God is in control. Flip over in Daniel. Here's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you got Nebuchadnezzar, who was just a brutal, evil, tyrannical thug of a tyrant who was the most powerful man on planet Earth at the time when he was king. Daniel chapter 4, verse 1. He made a, he had a, a major ego, built a huge, massive statue, really of himself, 90 feet tall or however tall it was. So he spends probably money and years and slaves to build this massive idol, and then he calls all the people to come, not just people from Babylon, but people from all over the world that he has enslaved and conquered. Has them all come out to a public assembly to dedicate this massive statue. And he demands that people bow down and worship uh, the idol. And then he actually makes a law or decree and says that you must bow down. If you don't bow down and worship, then you'll be thrown into the fiery furnace. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't bow down. They violate the law. And they pay the consequences. And the police come and get them. And they actually tie them up and then throw them into the fiery furnace. They should have been incinerated before they even hit the ground of the fiery furnace. God preserved them. He was gracious. That was a supernatural act. But they thought they were going to their death. And they said just before they were going in that uh, we're going to obey our God and not the laws of man. And if we have to die for it, so be it. So uh, this statement in verse, look at verse 34 and 35 of Daniel 4. Uh, by the way, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, God chastened him, brought him low, worked on his heart, and I believe Nebuchadnezzar got saved. People forget that. That'd be like saying Stalin got saved, Hitler got saved. Nebuchadnezzar was worse. And at the end of his life, he recognized the God of heaven, verse 34, at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Can you imagine Hitler or Stalin saying this? About the true God? That's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 35, And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will. Nebuchadnezzar, who earlier in this book repeatedly said, I will, I will, I will. Which was a manifestation of his pride and his arrogance. And now he's been changed, he's been humbled, and now it's not I will, it's thy will be done. That's what he said in verse 35 about God. God does according to his will. God is in charge. He does not, uh, He does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off God's hand. Wow. That's awesome. Point number one, God is in control. Be comforted by that, dear saints. Number two, 
after God is in control, God defines right and wrong. We know this, this is basic, but we need, we continue to need to be reminded of this. What happened on June 26th isn't the first time something like that has happened in American history. It's not the first time it's happened in world history. It's happened repeatedly. Uh, examples of it abound in scripture. The fact of the matter is we need to be reminded God is the one who defines right and wrong. There are human laws and then there are divine laws and sometimes those laws conflict. And we know that the truth is in God's laws. Isaiah chapter 5, if you have your Bible. This whole chapter, if you read this, uh, this was God's describing his own nation, his own people, his covenant people, people that he rescued, that he established, that he saved, that he brought through the desert, that he brought through the Red Sea. They were to be his people, his children, his child, his precious one, the apple of his eye, the one that he had a relationship with, who had become, by this time, more of a wayward child in the days of Isaiah, a disobedient child. And so sin was abounding all throughout the nation of northern and southern Israel. And so God has to chasten his people. And he gives this description of the society as a whole that when you're reading this, you're thinking, man, this is America. This describes American society. This is what we're like as a people. Begins to rebuke uh, chapter 5, verse 3. Now, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. Verse 8, God starts pronouncing woes on his own people as a nation, as a people, in light of the culture and the sin that was proliferated. Verse 8, woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room. They were becoming greedy, compromising in their living. Verse 11, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink. So he's going through with all these woes. Verse 18, woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes. Verse 20, woe to those, here it is, this is key, verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. There it is. That's what we've done in our culture today. Not just on this issue and the definition of marriage. On countless issues where the world, the secular world out there, is telling us something is good when actually, no, that is evil. Happened in the early 1970s when they made a law that you could abort your baby legally. And actually people were celebrating and saying, that is good. It is good that you can kill a baby inside the womb. That's what the world was telling us and still tells us to this day. That is good. We say, no, that's evil. That's a precious life. And so now we're being told that uh, same-gender marriage is a good thing. And God's Word is clear. No, it's not a good thing. It's evil. So, But that's what the world does. So we shouldn't be surprised God said this 2,700 years ago in Israel. So God is the one who defines right and wrong. Speaking of bad laws, <laughs> I've already said it. This law on June 26 is not the first bad law that's come down the pike. Uh, we mentioned other bad laws. We mentioned the abortion law that was made in the early 1970s. We talked about the bad law that the Supreme Court here in America made in the 1850s when they decreed through a law that black people were property and not people. We talked about that last time. That was a law of the land. Then you look to the Bible of all these bad laws. I just want to share a couple with you. Look at Exodus chapter 1. Do you remember this bad law? This this is as bad as it gets. In, in Exodus chapter 1, you had Joseph, who was favored by the Pharaoh. 
and then Joseph died, and then another Pharaoh came along. And the, the Pharaoh under Joseph's day liked the Jews, liked Israel, was hospitable to them. And then another Pharaoh was raised up, and he didn't like the Jews. He didn't like the Israelites. He was threatened by them. As a matter of fact, he despised them and made laws accordingly. And so that's why in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, it says, Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. That is a bad thing. What that means is a new king uh, arose over Egypt. A new Pharaoh rose up in power who didn't like Joseph and the Jews and took away all their blessings and all their freedoms and all their property and then imposed these horrible laws on them and made them slaves and abused them. That's what that verse means. A new king rose up. A new authority figure rose up. And we could say that here in America. That's the way time is. Time changes. It ebbs and flows based on who the leader is. And we could say that here in America. Now, some new nine members of the Supreme Court arose over America. Five of them did not know the Constitution. That's what could go in verse 8 for us today. Literally. And so this new wicked king is intimidated by the Jews. And so he makes this uh, new law. And it is verse 13. Here's the law. And the Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor vigorously. The Egyptians compelled. How do you compel someone as a people? Well, you make laws. You make laws and you foist it upon them. You decree it. You mandate it. You force it. That's what that means. So here's an abuse of power. Defying that every human being is made in the image of God, as the Bible says. And that's what this Pharaoh did. He compelled the sons of Israel to become slaves. And then he continued to compel and make horrible laws. Of Verse 16, he made another decree that when young baby Hebrew boys were born, they were to be put to death by being thrown in the Nile. That was through an edict, through a law of a higher power. Not by nine Supreme Court justices, but by a monarch, by a pharaoh. It's the same thing. Another horrible law. So this is not new. Go back to Daniel. We were just there. Again, this is Nebuchadnezzar. I already alluded to this and read a little bit, but I want to highlight a couple of verses there of how Nebuchadnezzar, who reigned supreme during his day, conquering nations and peoples all around him, wielding great authority and power like no other king of his day, actually like no other king in history, in chapter 3, look at some of the laws that he actually decreed. These are formal laws. I alluded to them earlier, but Daniel chapter 3, verse 4. Nebuchadnezzar uh, builds this idol. Then uh, verse 4 says, Then the herald loudly proclaimed. The herald? Who's that? The herald works for the king. What is the herald doing? He's announcing the new law. Here's what the Supreme Court has decreed. This is like telling CNN. Announce it to the world what the herald is doing this is a formal law verse 4 then the herald loudly proclaimed to you the command is given there it is it's a law it, it's binding on all people so says the king what's the law verse 5 that you are to fall down and worship the golden image of nebuchadnezzar the king that the king has set up verse 6 also part of the law is but whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace and blazing fire there it is it's a twofold law you bow down and worship and if you don't you're thrown in the, into the uh, fiery furnace 
fall down and worship. And Ed says everybody did in verse 7. Uh, then some uh, informants told Nebuchadnezzar, well, there's these three guys that did it, these three Jewish guys, young boys. And they told Nebuchadnezzar. And in verse 13, it says that Nebuchadnezzar was in a rage and angry. In a rage. Brought the three men before him. Cast them into the fiery furnace. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, man, can you imagine the courage they had as young men, probably in their teens, saying this to the, the ultimate power of the day? Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this. It, if it is to be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery blaze. And even if he doesn't, we will serve him. Another bad law. And then finally, one more bad law. Look at Acts chapter 4 in the New Testament. So this is the early church. God started the church through the 12 apostles and some faithful people that they were with. And then they're going through Jerusalem and they're preaching in the name of Jesus. And then there, immediately there's animosity and enemies of Christ who don't like the message being preached about Jesus. And so those that have local power may abuse their authority that God delegated to them and they start making laws that are totally illegitimate and hostile to Christianity. And here they are. Acts chapter 4, verse 17. Those in authority said to Peter and the apostles, verse 17, but in order that it may not spread any further among the people, this this preaching about Jesus, let us warn them to speak no more. You know what that is? That's a law. That's a decree. That's an authority figure speaking. Verse 17, speak no more. Speak no more to any man in this name. What name? The name of Jesus. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them. See, it was a law. Another bad law. Uh, commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Here needs to be our response, our balanced response, verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. Peter says that this happens again also in chapter 5. Uh, look at chapter 5, verse 28. Uh, again, the authorities chastising the apostles. We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, the name of Jesus. And behold, nevertheless, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And Peter and the apostles' response was, um, when there are two laws that conflict, God's law conflicts with human law, we will obey the higher law, God's law. And that needs to be our response and our attitude as Christians. We need to obey God's laws. And when human laws undermine God's laws, we stay faithful to God's laws and there could be consequences. Uh, the normal practice for us as Christians, we know from Romans 13, is to obey the law of the Lamb, right? To be good citizens. We, we should stop at the red light. We should go the speed limit. We should obey. We should pay our taxes. Jesus said it, that beautiful balance. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, legitimately, and render unto God the things that are God's. The definition of, mar the definition of marriage is God's. So we honor that, despite what the culture says. Despite how hostile people may get. Render unto God the things that are God. So God defines right and wrong. Number three, God will punish the wicked. God will punish the wicked. Scripture is clear. The New Testament just says the wages of sin is death. It's the consequence. It's a universal spiritual principle. Ezekiel 18 says the same thing. The soul, every soul is mine. The soul that sins shall die. Because God is holy. He must punish sin. The wages of sin is death.
uh, God will punish the wicked. People aren't going to get away with their sins and undermining God's laws. Uh, but go to Romans chapter 1 for a summary of this principle that God will punish the wicked. We may not see righteousness in this area in our lifetime, by the way. You may not see the abortion law undone in your lifetime. You may not see this law about uh, marriage undone in your lifetime. Uh, nevertheless, God is in control and he will punish the wicked. And by the way, this is a federal law that affects our entire country. It's a mindset of, of millions of people. And as a result, there's going to be massive consequences. And so Romans 1 speaks to this. So Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18, uh, God is talking to uh, sinful people individually and a whole bunch of sinful people together, living together, make up a sinful culture. So there are cultural ramifications to Romans chapter 1, 18 through 31. And there are many parallels to what's going on in America today and every uh, and many other secular ungodly countries. It's not just America. And it says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It, it is clear, it is emphatic. God is angry, he hates sin. Uh, present tense is revealed. Literally, it says, for the wrath of God is being, is being revealed right now. What that means, uh, the wrath of God is being poured out by God presently as we speak on the earth upon all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. This did not just begin on June 26th. This has been going on all throughout human history wherever there has been sin. God always pours out his wrath on sin and unabated sin in many different ways. God reveals his wrath many different ways. One of the ways that God pours out his wrath in Romans 3 is by letting the people just do what you want. Fine. You, really? You just want to indulge in everything that you want to do with respect to profligate, gross, sick immorality and sin and compromise and lying. Okay, I'll let you. That's one of the forms of God's wrath is just letting go, taking away the restraints and let people consume themselves with their sin. And that's what Paul says three times. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. And then thus becomes this spiral and cycle of escalating sin downward into the gutter of an entire race of people. That is the wrath of God that's being poured out. That is the judgment of God. So the wrath of God in verse 18 isn't talking about lightning bolts coming out of heaven or earthquakes happening and 25,000 people consumed at once. It's through providence and the actual choices of sinful men and God just sets back and says, fine, you don't want to listen to me? You want to violate your conscience? You want to ignore general revelation that is so clear universally of who I am? Fine. You want to harden your heart? Fine. I will give you up. And that's what he did three times. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. And as you read through Romans 1, 18 through 31, there is an escalation of the severity, the breadth, and the depth of the sin till it utterly reaches rock bottom. And I would say this describes America to a T. So just a couple of the highlights here. The wrath of God is being poured out from God, uh, from heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, not just in America, but everywhere where there is sin. Uh, against people who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, they know the truth, and that the truth that they know is inborn. It's in their conscience. They were made in God's image. And they suppress, they reject and deny that truth. Because God created every human being in His image with a conscience. And the reality and the immediate intuitive knowledge that God exists, that God is the creator, that God is to be honored. Every person has that moral barometer from the time they're born, even before that. And that's what they're suppressing and rejecting and dying, verse 19, because that which is known about God 
is evident within them. See, that's the conscience. So Richard Dawkins, the most famous atheist in the world, he's not an atheist. He's kidding and fooling you. He is a theist. He's suppressing the truth that he knows intuitively about God. And he's doing it because of his sin. That's what Romans is teaching. There are no atheists. They are lying or they're deceived. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them by virtue of creation, being made in their image. And also that which is created in the world. Natural revelation. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, the very beginning, since Adam and Eve, God's invisible attributes, specifically his eternal power and his divine nature and the fact that he exists, have been clearly seen by all people being understood. They know this through what has been made so that they are without excuse. There are no atheists. That's what Paul is arguing. Or even though they knew God, see, they knew he existed. They didn't know him personally. They knew he was the creator. They're accountable to him. They're, they know he is the judge. They, that's why people fear death. They must face the judge and the creator. They did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their speculation and their foolish heart was darkened from sin. That's what happened. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of a corruptible man and of birds and four-footed... In other words, every human being is going to worship something. And if they're not worshiping the true God, they're going to worship something else, even if they call themselves an atheist. They're going to worship something, whether it's money, power, themselves, whatever, or make up their own religion. Because we're all religious creatures by virtue of creation and being made in God's image, who is a spiritual being. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over. There it is. God gave them over. That's a form of his wrath, his judgment. He's going to give them over into the lusts of their hearts to impurity. So one of the things that just typifies unbelievers is sexual immorality. And the restraint is gone. And they indulge in it. And their conscience becomes seared in order that their bodies might be dishonored among them. Verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them over again. To what? To degrading passions. Now the sin is getting worse that they indulge in. Verse 26, what kind of sin? Well, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. Women liking women. That's lesbianism. That's what it's talking about. In verse 27, in the same way also the men abandoned their natural function of desire towards women as God designed uh, and abandoned that for uh, the natural function of the woman and burned in their desires towards one another, towards other men, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And then finally, verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over. That's the third time Paul says God gave them over. That's God's punishment. Fine. You want to harm yourself? Hurt yourself? Abandon me? I will let you. That's one of the forms of God's wrath, and that's what he does. Giving them over. That'd be like, you know, to the three-year-old who's out in the street. Fine, you want to run in the street? On the busy highway? Fine, I'll let you. What kind of parent would do that? That would be cruel, wouldn't it? But that's a form of wrath. And that child endangers himself. God gave them over to a depraved mind uh, to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. That characterizes pretty much our society. Verse 32, and although... They knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. Here's the thing. They not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now, that's what some of the justices did on the Supreme Court. Justice Kennedy. I, I didn't 
he's never said that he's um, a homosexual or gay, yet he gave hearty approval to it by the judgment he rendered. And that's what Romans said would happen. But the point is God will punish. He can't get away with sin. God is in control. So God is in control. God defines right and wrong. God will punish the wicked. And then finally, let me close with some points for us. Uh, there are just so many principles we could think through, but we've got to keep the proper balance, which is hard to do in a difficult situation and topic like this. So here's three simple principles. Uh, this is number four. Speak the truth in love. Two weeks ago, I read out of Timothy, and it said, don't be quarrelsome. Don't quarrel with people about this. Don't, quarrel. don't be argumentative in an unedifying, disrespectful way. But I wasn't saying, don't talk about this. Don't be silent. Don't be a doormat. Don't be muzzled. That isn't what God's calling for Christians is. God wants believers to be vocal for him. We represent him. We are the salt and the light of the world. We're to manifest truth on his behalf. And one of the main ways we do that is by speaking. And that's why Ephesians says, speak the truth and speak the truth in love. Jesus is the master model. So many people think that, oh, the Gospels, they're so warm and cuddly. As you read about Jesus, you're thinking, really? Have you have you read the Gospels lately? I remember when I preached through the Gospel of John, all 21 chapters. And the one thing that just uh, jumped out at me is, wow, Jesus was in a fight in every chapter. Really? And it culminates in like chapter 8, and there's a public discourse going on, and Jesus, it, they're calling him all kinds of names. And he called them the children of the devil. This was publicly during a holiday in Jerusalem. And recently I've been reading Luke and it's the same thing. It's like Jesus is getting into it every single chapter. What is he doing? He is speaking the truth and he is doing it in love. They're the ones becoming hostile and angry and divisive and eventually murderous. What happens about the truth, spiritual truth? Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. The other passage says, I did not come to bring peace, but division. What do you mean by that? The truth will divide. That's what it does. Spiritual truth divides. Some people just don't want to hear spiritual truth. It makes them mad. You can say it as genteel as you want, as kind as you want, in soft tones. And if they hear the truth, they are enraged by it. It's just what truth does. It's what Jesus meant. Nevertheless, we are to speak the truth in love. So that's the balance. Speak the truth, do it in love with gentleness and reverence in the words of Peter. But we can't be muzzled. So that's point number four. Speak the truth in love. And so you might have to say that homosexuality is a sin. You know, a lot of people are afraid to say that today. Oh, I might be stigmatized. Uh, I might be called a homophobe. Uh, I might be ostracized. I might be thrown in jail. I might have this taken away. I might have that right taken away. doesn't matter. Bible is clear. Leviticus 18.22. Leviticus 20, verse 13 says that homosexuality is wrong. It is a sin. It's an abomination. That's what Scripture says. First Corinthians, the New Testament says the same thing. As a matter of fact, it's interesting that Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 6. We already looked at this, verses 9 and 10, where Paul starts out the phrase and he says, do not be deceived. He's talking to Christians. Do not be deceived. He's trying to wake them up. Wake up! Don't be deceived by what you're hearing and what people are saying in society. Think like a Christian. Think biblically. Do not be deceived. By that which is not truth and by the devil himself. Well, what, Paul? What are we susceptible to be being deceived by as Christians? And he goes right in. Well, 
that uh, immoral people will not enter the kingdom of God. Neither the effeminate nor the adulterer, and he explicitly says, nor homosexuals will not enter the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived on that issue. Because he knew in the Corinthian culture, that was a dominant belief in the culture. That it was okay to be fast and loose uh, morally. It's okay. Paul said no. That That's deception. So, speak the truth, speak it in love, uh, hold firm to the truth, um, but balance that with, and staying focused, is Jesus died for all sin. Yeah, homosexuality is a sin. And that's why Jesus came, right? Jesus, the very purpose that Jesus came, that's the good news. You've got to give uh, people the good news. You know what? You can be forgiven of that sin. You can be liberated from that sin. You can be set free from that sin. Uh, you can be adopted into God's family. Je- that's why Jesus came. He came into this world to be punished for all sin. He died on the cross for every sin, for lying and adultery and heterosexual sin and homosexual sin and theft and everything else. He died the penalty for that. That is the good news. Jesus died for your sin if you believe in his gospel and are willing to admit that and repent. He can save you and forgive you. Jesus didn't come into this world as the great physician uh, to those who were healthy. That's what he said, right? He came to those who were sick and needy as the great physician. That's why he came into the world. His very purpose was to seek and to save those who were lost. So we've got to speak the truth. We've got to point out sin, but it's got to be balanced with the good news. Anytime we point out sin, it's really just laying the the pavement or the uh, groundwork for the gospel, for the glorious good news of Jesus Christ. And so, and then we can give them the promise of Isaiah 55 and Ezekiel 18. Repent and you will live. Isn't that great news? Repent and you will live. Turn and God will forgive all of your sin. I love that phraseology in Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. God will forgive you all of your sin. So we need to speak the truth in love. Uh, number five, keep the right priorities. What is that? Well, our priority really is the gospel. It starts there first, the gospel. And the definition of marriage is a priority. But if you think you're going to argue a whole bunch of unbelievers into believing your biblical view of marriage, that's futile thinking. That ain't never going to happen. Most of the truths in the Bible, if not all of them, I believe because I'm a Christian. Because I have the supernatural ability and capacity to believe as I'm powered by the Holy Spirit. If you think you can argue with an unbeliever and get an unbeliever who just believes in total evolution and try to get them to believe in creation, that's not going to happen. That's not even our job. Or believe in election, or believe in this, or believe in what. The only reason I believe in hell is because it's in the Bible and because I'm a Christian. If I wasn't a Christian, I wouldn't believe in hell. How do I know that? Because when I wasn't a Christian, I didn't believe in hell. I only believed in hell after I became a Christian. So we've got to, uh, to maintain the right priority. So speak the truth in love. And number five is keep the right priority. And that is the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. And personal care of the individual that you're talking to. And with keeping the right priorities, it's just a couple of things. Uh, don'ts. Don't argue with people needlessly. Don't, don't boycott people over this issue. We talked about that in 1 Corinthians 5. Remember when Paul said, hey, Corinthians, Christians, don't boycott unbelievers because otherwise if you wanted to boycott them, eventually you'd have to leave the world. I'm not going to buy my Wonder Bread there at that 7-Eleven because the owner of that 7-Eleven is an atheist. Okay, good luck going to another 7-Eleven where they don't have some false religion you don't agree with. Then you'll never get Wonder Bread, I guess. You have to wait till you get to heaven where you get perfect bread. And that's Paul's argument. You'd have to leave the world. You're not called as a Christian to boycott unbelievers. So if you have a business transaction to do, we already talked about this, so uh, we 
we talked about it thoroughly back then, but just a reminder. Uh, somebody, this was a good discussion. Somebody brought up to me, and, and a Christian was concerned as they're dialoguing with other Christians, and they were pointing out that it seems like a lot of Christians I know on this issue is they're saying that homosexuality is the worst sin, the unpardonable sin, and it's worse than all other sins, and um, that we're supposed to boycott those people, but they don't have a problem uh, not boycotting other people and other sins. What do you think, Pastor Cliff? And I said, yeah, that's imbalanced. You're, you're, you're on the right track. That doesn't make sense. It shouldn't be that way. They're just like any other sinner. So don't do that. That's what Paul said. Um, so don't boycott. Also, don't be a coward. Don't be like the Arctic River frozen over at the mouth. Which means you're afraid to say anything. Speak up for God. So speak the truth in love. Number five, keep the right priorities. And then finally, number six, maintain the right perspective. These are just, you know these. Maintain the right perspective. Big picture. This earth is not our home, is it? Heaven is our home. And we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will come in glory and save us and transform our lowly bodies into conformity with His glorious resurrection body. Isn't that awesome? This earth is not our home. Society is getting worse. Did you know that? If you think society is getting better, you need to change your thinking. The Apostle Paul said through the Holy Spirit, uh, times are waxing worse and worse and men are going from bad to evil. So society, we're not trying to save society. We can't. Uh, another thing to help our perspective is we are in the minority as Christians. That's all there is to it. Get used to it. There is no moral majority. Or there's no Christian majority, not in America. Few there be that find it, said Jesus. Narrow is the way. Narrow is the gate. We're in the minority. And then finally, we were called to suffer as Christians. You will endure persecution in this life, said Paul in uh, to Timothy. Uh, first, uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 29 says, You were called not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. So you're being ostracized, so you're being yelled at, so you're being cursed, so you're being persecuted. Shouldn't be a surprise. Actually, Jesus said, count yourself blessed. If people say evil and all manner of horrible things about you, that's in Matthew. Go back and read that. Count yourself blessed. You're on God's team. They did the same thing to your blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let me close with that great passage I read earlier, Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Quite appropriate to give us the proper perspective on this complicated, difficult, divisive issue. Titus chapter 3, 1 through 7. I'll close with this. Remind them, remind the Christians, remind the people in your local church to be subject to the secular rulers the pagan rulers, the ungodly rulers. Insofar as their laws don't violate God's laws. Uh, be subject to the authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one. Whoa, that's, that's hard, isn't it? Malign no one, to be uncontentious, to be gentle, showing every consideration for all people, all people, Every consideration. Why? Because we also were once foolish, weren't we? Before we got saved, we were disobedient. We were deceived by our own sin and by Satan himself. 
enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice, envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. We didn't do anything to save ourselves. It was all God and His grace. And saved us according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen? Amen. And with that, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You for our time together and the opportunity we have to glean such precious truths and reminders from Your Word. God, through Your Holy Spirit that lives in us, of those who know You, empower us to fulfill the command that You gave in Titus. To be gentle, to be courteous to all men. To be patient, to be humble, and yet speak the truth in love courageously for You and to keep the right priority of finding the Gospel everywhere we go as we have opportunity. And we thank You um, we ask that you would be with us and go before us all for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.